We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter, the book of Hebrews and the ninth chapter, as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews. This morning I will be reading and then preaching on verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. That's verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 9. I invite you to read along silently as I read this text of scripture aloud this morning. Beginning in verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your kindness in bringing us here today to hear your word preached. And we would ask, as we do each and every Lord's Day, for the help and the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher and guide, that he would show us the meaning of this portion of Scripture and help us to apply it to our own thinking to our own minds and thoughts in such a way that our minds are renewed by your word and our conduct is transformed in such a way that we bring honor and glory to you. So thank you for this time. Thank you for the work of the Spirit. Bless us now as we receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, as we've noted over the past several weeks, there are two tents associated with the unfolding of God's redemptive work in the Old and New Covenants. The first tent, which God gave to the people under the leadership of Moses, was the tabernacle. And through the presence of the tabernacle and through the ministry that was performed in the tabernacle, the people learned about their sinfulness and about their need for sacrifices to atone for their transgressions. In fact, in many ways, the tabernacle pointed to their need for redemption, and it foreshadowed the coming person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, throughout this book, the book of Hebrews, we're also told that the sacrificial system which was instituted for the tabernacle, and which later continued in the temple as well, was both inadequate and unable to offer the kind of sacrifice that was required to remove sins permanently and eternally. 
In fact, as long as the tabernacle stood, it testified to its own inadequacy. It testified to its own inability to provide a more permanent redemption for God's people. And this was evidenced by the fact that the blood of goats and bulls was being spilled daily and continually. And yet this blood, as often as it was spilt, could never remove sin. So clearly, the first tent that is mentioned here in this ninth chapter of Hebrews served its appointed purpose in the plan of God. But what happened after the high priest of Israel entered into that tent was never intended to bring about a permanent solution to man's sin problem. But rather, in order for the sins of God's people to be eternally toned, atoned for, and in order for the new covenant to begin, which Christ is the mediator over, there had to be the presence of a second tent, a greater and better tent. There had to be one who would enter into this second tent and perform a sacrificial work that no one else was qualified to do. And where is this second tent? And who entered into this tent and performed there a redemptive work that no one else could do? Well, I want us to notice that the writer of this book answers both of these questions here in our sermon text this morning, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 23 through 28. And in doing so, he not only gives us insight into the kind of ministry that Jesus performed for us in the past, but also insight into the kind of work that he now does and will do for us in the future also. And so let's begin by addressing this first question, where is this second tent that is associated with our redemption? And notice that the writer answers by drawing our attention upward, upward to heavenly things here beginning in verse 23. For just as there are things that need to be done on earth to accomplish our redemption, so certain things had to be done in heaven as well. For the writer to the Hebrews states here in verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Again, the copies of the heavenly things are earthly things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so what is clear here from the text is that the writer is focusing now not on the earthly tent, which was his focus in verse 1 of this ninth chapter of Hebrews, but his focus now is on the heavenly tent or the heavenly dwelling place. And of course, we know this because of the writer's reference here in verse 23 to heavenly things. Notice that, heavenly things. And what he states here in verse 23 about these heavenly things is truly fascinating. For in the previous verses, verses 21 and 22, the, the writer has been describing what had been done in the earthly tent or the tabernacle 
when it came to purification of the tent itself. And he stressed there that without the shedding of blood, nothing that transpired in that tent would have any effect whatsoever. And we would expect to hear that when speaking of God's tent on earth, for its worship and sacrifices were imperfect. Yet here in verse 23, which is our focus now, the writer reveals that there is also a heavenly tent. And within this tent, certain acts or sacrifices were necessary as well. In fact, just as the copies of the heavenly things had to meet God's highest standards, everything that entered into and everything that transpired within God's heavenly tent also had to meet God's righteous and holy standards for full and absolute perfection. And this was absolutely and especially true when it came to offering up better sacrifices. Better sacrifices. For what the high priests of Israel offered down on earth below could never meet God's requirements of a acceptable sacrifice up in heaven above. And of course, this posed a great dilemma for mankind as long as the earthly tabernacle and the earthly sacrificial system continued. For no mere earthly priest before Jesus Christ could ascend into heaven and offer up within God's heavenly tent those better sacrifices that God's righteous nature and all wise purposes demanded. And yet now here in Hebrews 9, verse 24, the writer gives us, honestly, brethren, he gives us some of the greatest news to be found anywhere in Scripture. Some of the greatest news to be found anywhere in Scripture. For he writes here, for Christ has entered. Don't let the significance of those words slip out of our minds before we understand the import and the significance of them. For Christ has entered. Or in other words, Christ has exercised his unique right of access, not only into holy places made with hands, which are but copies of true things, but into heaven itself. Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. For Christ has entered into that place where there are no copies but only originals. Christ has entered into that place where there are no barriers. There are no obstacles to God because he is immediately in the presence of God. Christ has entered into that place where there is no need for that elaborate and ineffectual sacrificial system that once occupied so much of Israel's life and worship. For now Christ is in that place where only he could enter. Only Christ could enter there. That's the significance of it. 
Only Christ had access to it. He has accomplished that redemption that only he could accomplish. And Christ is now sitting on that throne that only he has the authority to sit upon. In fact, by declaring here in verse 24 that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are but copies, but into heaven itself, the writer is in essence saying that Christ has transcended all that is earthly. And he is now exercising a heavenly and a kingly rule that was promised to him by God the Father as his own reward. For by entering into his glory, by performing that work in the heavenly tent that only Jesus Christ was qualified to do, Christ has merited for himself a name that is above every other name. You know the passage. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just Lord of the earth, but Lord of heaven to the glory of God the Father. And certainly Jesus is worthy of this honor given what he has entered into and what he has accomplished. And yet, let us notice here at the end of verse 24 that the writer places more stress upon the benefits that we as God's people received from Christ's entrance into the heavenly tent than on what Christ himself has received. More emphasis on what we have received as benefits than on what Christ himself has received. For the writer states here in verse 24 that Jesus now appears in the presence of God, not on his behalf, although Christ could certainly have asked for things for himself, but on our behalf instead. For even after his exaltation into heaven's glories, Christ is still ministering Christ is still tending to his sheep. Christ is still pursuing before God the Father what is best for us. Brethren, this should move us. Christ is in heavenly glory. He has a right to request anything he wills from the Father for his own benefit and yet he pursues that which is best for us, our redemption. What about those things that were so honored by God's people in the past? The old covenant sacrificial system and the service of the high priest. Does Christ's ministry still resemble their ministry in any sense today? Well, in many respects, the, the writer makes it very clear here in our text that the heavenly minister, ministry of Jesus is, is by no means a continuation of what the Old Testament priests did under the Old Covenant. For we read here, beginning in verse 25, that our Lord's ministry was not to offer himself repeatedly. So there's a separation. The high priest of the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Covenant, offered sacrifices repeatedly. Christ did not enter to offer himself repeatedly. For although Christ made himself an offering, which the demands of God's justice required, 
Christ by no means saw his sacrifice as being equal to or in line with or the same as the sacrifices of the old covenant. Whether Christ knew in offering up himself and all of his goodness and perfection that the righteous demands of God's justice were now fully satisfied, completely satisfied, and therefore Christ had no intention of presenting himself repeatedly before the heavenly altar as an atoning sacrifice for sins continually. Needless to say, dear brethren, it's important that we understand that Christ was not presenting himself as a continuous offering, nor was Christ suggesting by any of his actions that his sacrifice would need to be repeated or even represented before God over and over again for sins of the people to be atoned for. For example, the Lord's Supper is not a re presentation of Christ's sacrifice each and every Lord's Day. That's not what it is. Christ is not sacrificing himself repeatedly. He is not representing over and over again to God what he did. Rather, Christ our Lord willingly entered into God's heavenly tent for us with the intention of offering up only one sacrifice which would satisfy divine justice forever. This cannot be overemphasized, beloved, if we are to understand how Christ's sacrifice differed from those offerings made under the old covenant. For if Christ's sacrifice was merely a sacrifice of the same kind, then it would have to be repeated again. And if it had to be repeated, then Christ would have had to suffer again and again since the very foundation of the world, which the writer clearly objects to here in the beginning of verse 26. Therefore, in no sense was Christ's offering for sin repeatable. Rather, what Christ offered up, which was his own life and righteousness, was so perfect that he only had to bring his blood into God's heavenly tent one time. One time. And once Christ had done so, it was never to be repeated again. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews summarizes this point of sacred theology extremely well here in the rest of verse 26. Notice what he says that Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages or at the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And dear brethren, if Christ appeared once and for all to put away our sin, who are we to suggest that his work might be insufficient? Who are we to suggest that our sins might somehow resurface and we must give an account for them again? Who are we to suggest that more might be necessary in order for us as his people to be forgiven? No, my dear friends, Jesus has already entered into that heavenly tent where no one else could and he has already made an offering that removes our sins 
forever. Let us not question, let us not minimize, let us not downgrade the work that Jesus has already done by suggesting now that we must somehow perfect that thing which he could not do. Let us not minimize or downgrade what Jesus has done by insisting that we could somehow lose that salvation, that his perfect once-for-all sacrifice has already purchased for us. You cannot lose that which Christ purchased for you. No, dear friends, let us now rest in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Let that sink in, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ for you. Let us be grateful for where Christ entered and for what Christ did once he was there that has eternally secured our salvation. Indeed, let us push away any and all doubts this morning about the permanent nature of our redemption let us rejoice in the settled reality that what Christ has purchased for us cannot be taken away, nor does Christ need to purchase it again. For Christ has a right to see what his own soul travail has purchased, and Christ without fail will see the fruits of his own labors in us. Did you hear that? He will see the fruits of his own labors in us. We are the proof today as the people of God that he accomplished his mission and that he accomplished it perfectly. In fact, in making this point here in verse 27, the writer to the Hebrews now reminds us that it is God's design that death will be followed by judgment, or better yet, by a time of revealing. And what every man has done and is entitled to will be made manifest before his creator and judge. And of course, in the case of lost men and women, according to verse 27 here, the matter of their eternal souls is at stake. The arrival of physical death will be a sobering and revealing thing for lost men. It will result in their greatest and most severe loss. In fact, in the case of lost men and women, their appointment with death will be a time of tremendous shame and unspeakable sorrow. For lost men and women will stand before God and they will give an account after death for all that they've done in the flesh and there will be no atoning blood for what was offered up or that was offered up on their behalf. You know, Christ's atoning blood was offered up for his sheep. Christ's atoning blood was offered up for his elect. When the lost appear before judgment, appear before God, there is no atoning blood that has been offered up on their behalf. I know it's popular today to think that Christ's atoning blood was spilt for all men, but the reality is that Christ's atoning blood is for his sheep, for his elect. 
My friend, I plead with you this morning, if you are an unbeliever, not to take this reality lightly, nor should you ignore it completely, which would be far worse, for death and judgment are coming for you. If you are lost this morning, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, death and judgment will soon be here for you. And the hounds of hell, as they say, are biting at your heels. If you want to be prepared, you need to take the claims of Christ seriously. You need to cry out in faith now to the only one who could enter God's heavenly tent and to the only one who can help you with your unbelief. Yes, if you're lost this morning, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation today. Plead the sufficiency of his mercy and the power of his sacrifice for sin. For the blood of Christ was shed for an endless number of sinners who come to him in repentance and with sincere faith. That's the idea here with this statement in verse 27 implanted about judgment and death and standing before God. But returning to the person of Christ here in our text this morning, let us also consider how this principle of death followed by a revealing of what is spiritually true applies to him. Notice what the writer says here in verse 28. That Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, notice that, to bear the sins of many, not to bear just the sins of a few, but to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Notice that. Will appear a second time. And so for Christ, his death was not followed by any sense of what was lost and undone but by the promise of what is still coming. There's a contrast here. Lost men and women who face death go to judgment. And the idea that at judgment there is this horrible sense of shame and lost and things undone. But when Christ experienced death, it was not permanent. It was just the beginning. It was just a revealing of all that God will do, has promised to do. Christ's death was not followed by any sense of what was lost and undone, but by the promise of what is still coming. And according to this precious promise of Scripture, Christ will appear to his people a second time. Notice that. He will appear to his people a second time. And of course, this too offers a remarkable contrast between Christ, who offered himself as our once and for all sacrifices, and the sacrifices that were offered up before Christ. For in the case of those sacrifices that were offered up within God's first tent, the animals were sacrificed there, they died, and they never lived again. They were never presented alive a second time. They were never raised up victoriously from the dead. But here in the case of Jesus, again, he was a sacrifice also, right? He was a sacrifice that experienced death. He who willingly became a sacrifice is now the one who lives to see the results 
or the glorious benefits of that same sacrifice. And what is presented here in verse 28 as a great benefit of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension is the fact that he is returning a second time. Which is presented here in the rest of verse 28, not as a reason for for trembling, not as a reason for fear, but as a reason for rejoicing and reassurance to those whom he has redeemed. Why is Christ appearing for the second time not a reason for fear? Not for the believer, because the writer in Hebrews assures us here in the remainder of verse 28 that he is not appearing to deal with our sins. He is not appearing to remove the sins in the lives of his people. No doubt Christ will not deal with sin when he returns the second time because he already dealt with sin. He already entered boldly into God's heavenly tent and atoned for sin. Rather, we anticipate the arrival of our Lord a second time as an assurance that he will not be our judge, but that he will be our living Lord. His purpose will not be to judge us or to expose us as the wretched sinners that we are, but his purpose will be to reveal to us his own glory as the one who not only died for us, as the one who not only entered the heavenly tent for us, but the one who eliminated our debt, who removed our sins forever. Then secondly, we see here in verse 28 that Jesus will not only assure us of our salvation, Jesus will also redeem us on that day of his appearing. And that word here really has the idea of deliverance. He will deliver us on that day. He will deliver those who eagerly wait for him. And therefore, rather than dreading that day when Jesus shall come again, you and I have every reason to look forward to that day with all of our hearts and with the knowledge that our faith will be rewarded when we witness Christ's arrival. So what are the central themes of this portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning? Well, we have seen first in our text the great importance of Christ's entrance into the heavenly tent on our behalf. For what Christ did there as our great mediator and high priest should not escape our notice. In fact, I would suggest to you, brethren, whenever you have doubts about your salvation, if you are plagued by them, then you should immediately think of who entered into that heavenly place for you and what he did for you, what he accomplished for you. There should not be absence from our expressions of thanksgiving to God, sincere gratitude and thanksgiving for what Christ did in that heavenly tent. For had Christ not entered into that heavenly tent as our high priest and representatives, we would not know, we would not experience salvation today, nor would we be eagerly awaiting his arrival, his second return. Then, secondly, we have considered how we should live in light of Christ's work 
and what he did in that tent there as the only one who could have entered and ministered there for us. For we saw that the certainty of what Christ did in that heavenly tent should drive away any doubts or fears that we might have about the assurance of our salvation or our righteous standing in grace. For if Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, it was efficient enough to satisfy the requirements that existed within God's own tent, then we should not be concerned about anything upon this earth stealing those blessings away. For whatever is settled in heaven is made more certain on earth. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be anxious for nothing. Let us be anxious for nothing, especially as it relates to our redemption. Christ is in control of this. Christ has accomplished this. Our purpose is to simply trust him. Our purpose is simply to obey him as we wait with great anticipation and joy his soon arrival. May Christ find us faithful, rejoicing in what he has done, eagerly anticipating our reunion with him, just as he has been faithful to our souls. May God be glorified through his preached word today. May this portrait in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 9 of Jesus Christ and where he has entered be sealed upon our mind and consciences today. May it be a source of great hope and assurance and rejoicing for the people of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and love. We thank you for this portrait, this reminder of what Jesus did when he entered into that heavenly place. Thank you so much for what he did, for the certainty of it. Thank you so much that he's going to appear a second time for us as our glorious Redeemer, as the one who will make our faith sight, as the one who will present himself in glory to us that we might be with him forever. These are great truths to consider today for us as your people. We pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with these truths today. Greatly encourage us and give us hope. Father, continue to use this book, the book of Hebrews, for our benefit. Help us to grow in grace and understanding of all that Jesus did as our mediator. And may knowing these things inspire us and encourage us to live in obedience to him. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.